I'm reading from uh, John's Gospel this morning, the first chapter, verses 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when he said, when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of the grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we are grateful for your promises. You promise in your word that you don't leave us like we are, but you transform us. You change us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this morning as we dive into your word, through the ministry of your Spirit, you would do that. Thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, we talk a lot about, about balance, don't we? Uh, so you want to have a balanced diet. So you got to eat your veggies to balance out the ho-hos. Okay? You want to balance work and play. I talk to my kids about the need to balance their athletic endeavors with their academics. I remember reading a, a leadership book a few years back, and they talked about balancing critique and criticism with praise and compliments. And there was actually this, this thing that floated around for a while called the compliment sandwich. Have you heard of this? So the idea is you layer praise, then critique, and then praise. So if I was going to implement that back when I was a, a diving coach, for instance, it might go something like, hey, great job on that dive. You actually hit the water. You know, you could have hit the deck, you could have hit the board, but you hit your target, good job. You lay that foundation of praise first. Then the positive criticism or the constructive criticism. That dive, I don't know what that was. Actually, I do. It was horrible. You landed on your face. You got twos. Don't do that. Then you end with the last layer of praise. Hey, but this is way better than the last meet. The last meet, I actually thought you were trying to crash, this one I could tell you didn't want to land on your face, so good job. Now, that's an exaggeration. I was never really that nice. Uh, but when I hear a phrase like grace and truth, that's kind of where my mind first goes. That we need to learn how to balance grace and truth. And when I think about Jesus in those terms, I think, you know what? Jesus had the perfect balance between grace and truth. Sometimes he said the really hard things that people needed to hear. Other times he was just very gracious. Sometimes he sounded, frankly, kind of mean. Other times really kind and nice. He balanced them well. 
this text, uh, John chapter 1, I think explodes that understanding of grace and truth. It doesn't say Jesus came balanced in grace and truth. It says he came full of grace and truth. You know, if it had only been one or the other, Jesus would not have been the complete Savior that we need. But Jesus comes as the complete Savior that we absolutely need, and he comes full of grace and truth. For the next few minutes, I just want to explore with you three ways that the fullness of Christ, him being full of grace and truth, is really incredibly important. Uh, The first, the fullness of grace and truth in Jesus reveals the beauty of God's glory. Reveals the beauty of God's glory. Later in the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, will say, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, don't you know me? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Part of Jesus, an essential part of Jesus' ministry, was revealing the Father to us. John says that right here at the outset in John chapter 1. No one has seen God. No one has seen the Father. But Jesus comes to make him known. Now, can can I really geek out on you here for a minute? I don't talk a lot about, you know, Greek words and stuff like that, but I love it. The word here that John uses to make known, it's exegete. So when you're in Bible school or or seminary, you take exegesis classes where you learn how to explain and interpret. That's what the word means, the passage. John says here that Jesus exegetes. He explains and he interprets the Father for us. That's cool. Even cooler is the Old Testament echoes that are in this passage. John is constructing these phrases in such a way that he's trying to draw our minds back to Exodus chapter 33 and Exodus chapter 34. Why? What happens there? In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he says to God, God, let me see your glory. And God says, I can't let you see my face because if you see my face, you will surely die. But I'll hide you in the crack of a rock, the cleft of a rock, and cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, I'll give you a glimpse of my glory. And God does that. And he comes and he declares his name, the Lord, and says, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. That phrase, abounding in love and faithfulness, when that gets translated, that's the same phrase that John uses here to describe Jesus. Abounding in love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. When Moses wanted to see his God's glory, God declares something about himself. Jesus comes and shows that about God. He gives us a glimpse of the beauty of God's glory. Now maybe you're wondering, is really seeing 
God's beauty that important? Right now, my 16-year-old, uh, we're, we're casually looking for cars in his price range, which is like non-existent. Um, but we keep reminding ourselves, you know what? doesn't have to be pretty. It just has to be reliable and safe, and really safe is optional. Just reliable, okay? Is beauty that important? Yes. Yes, yes, and yes. Because we've been captivated by the false beauty of sin and captivated by the false beauty of worldly, shiny baubles and trinkets. And Jesus comes and he gives us a better vision of beauty, a vision of the beauty of God's glory. He lures us away from the shiny things and from the bait of sin. Sin and, and worldly pleasures, they have kind of a, a Medusa effect on us. As we gaze upon them, they turn our hearts to stone. But Jesus comes, and he melts our hearts of stone, and he says, look here, fix your eyes on me, and see glory. This is what you were made for, not those false beauties. This is where true pleasure, true joy rests in seeing, beholding, participating in the glory of God. So yes, beauty matters. And Jesus comes and shows us the beauty of God's glory. The beauty of being full of grace and truth. Jonathan Edwards preached, well, the famous sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But that is not my favorite sermon. My favorite sermon ever that I have ever read is one by him called Divine Excellencies in Jesus, or in Christ maybe. He's preaching from I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 5, where Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain. And he says, in Jesus, there's this convergence of divine excellencies that's beautiful. Things that you can't imagine going together like being a lion and a lamb, being infinitely high and condescending infinitely though. Those things meet in Jesus, and it's beautiful. I don't normally think of grace and truth going together, but they meet in the person of Jesus, and it's beautiful. So the first thing, when we glimpse Jesus full of grace and truth, we're seeing something of the beauty of God's glory. Second, Jesus, full of grace and truth, comes to us as we are, guilty and lost. We need grace and truth because we're guilty and lost. Grace because we're guilty, truth because we're lost. Ever since sin entered the world, back in the Garden of Eden, God has been there offering grace. Just when grace was needed, grace was given. And the story of God and humanity since Eden is a story of grace. Even the law, which we don't typically associate with, with grace, was grace-filled. It was God sharing his heart. God showing a better way. God showing what it looked like to be holy and to live life right. 
He was giving that to people who, frankly, didn't deserve it. And even in the law, there was all this grace infused through it. God recognized that people, men and women, weren't going to be able to keep the law. And so those who broke the law could offer sacrifices for the remittance of sins. It was temporary, it wasn't perfect, but it was grace, and it was there. But then comes Jesus, and the text says that now we have grace upon that grace. The law was grace, but now Jesus comes full of grace and truth, builds on that, and in a way replaces that grace. The law was gracious, but Jesus is even more gracious because he comes and does what the law can't do. He gives us new hearts. He comes and he fulfills the law for us and becomes a better sacrifice for us. He offers us super abounding grace, and we need that. But we need truth too, because we're lost. A lot of times I think we associate lost and sinner as kind of synonyms. I think they, they're different. We're lost because we have believed lies since the beginning. That's been our adversary's strategy to lie, to confuse, to infuse truth with lies, and to disorient us. And so we need truth. Have you ever noticed just what an insatiably curious race we are, species we are? We're constantly looking for truth on this never-ending quest for knowledge. That's why people back in the, the age of exploration would get on a boat and sail west, not knowing what in the world they would find. Are we going to fall off the edge of the earth? I don't know, but I want to know. Are we going to find new lands? I don't know, but that would be cool if we did. I want to know. Or people get in rocket ships, and the odds are, you know, like 50-50. We might come back, we might blow up, but I want to know what space is like. And we have the Discovery Channel, because we want to know. We want to know how leopards mate in Africa, you know, or other weird things. And many of you in this room have spent decades pursuing narrow slices of knowledge because we're incredibly curious. I, I've ran into this a while back. It's a visual guide to a PhD. You ever seen this before? This is great. Okay? So this circle represents all human knowledge. The blue dot on the left represents what you learn in elementary school. The green circle around that, what you learn in high school. On the left there, that kind of pinkish salmon colored with bump, that's your undergrad. Now you have that bump. It's a specialty, right? That's your major. You go for a master's degree, you push that bump a little farther out towards the edges of human knowledge. If you go on for your PhD, you bring it right up to the edge of human knowledge in your field. You study, you read all the scholarly articles, you spend years of your life dedicated to pursuing truth, and you get right out to the edge, and that box is where your studies meet the edge of truth, the edge of knowledge. And you spend a couple more years writing a dissertation, 
and you get that little pimple. It pushes the, the verge of human knowledge just a little bit further. Now, in that little bubble there, that's incredibly important stuff, right? That's where cancers get cured. That's where we gain, gain new insights into history that allow us to not repeat the mistakes of the past. But all those dots, all those pixels, all of it, all that knowledge, it's not fully known until each one of those pixels, each one of those points of truth get connected to the all-encompassing truth of Jesus. No field of knowledge is fully plumbed until we get down to the bottom and we discover Jesus who holds it all together. A single piece of knowledge is complete until those lines of connectivity are drawn. Tertullian, the early church father, said all light finds its origin in Jesus Christ, who is the fountain of truth. Now, if you can forgive his mixed metaphor there, it's a profound statement. Think about the fields of endeavor in the academy. Philosophy. You can know a lot of philosophy, but you won't know it Truly, you won't know it fully unless it's connected to Jesus. You can ask questions about the meaning of life, but until you connect it to Jesus, who is the giver of life and the one who defines meaning, you haven't fully known it. Science, whether it's astrophysics or or biology, you can know great things, but you won't know it truly and fully until it's connected to Jesus, who holds all things together in the universe history. You can know a lot about history, but you won't know it truly or fully until it's connected to the nadir of history in the crucifixion, the apex of history in the resurrection, the alpha of history and the omega of history when Christ returns. Art, same thing. You don't know it until you know it in relationship to Jesus who defines beauty. Anthropology, you don't know it until you know it in relationship to Jesus because he is the one who shows us what humanity can be, should be, will be. He's the true Adam. Jesus is the shared end point of all knowledge. So he's the hub that holds all knowledge, all truth together. He is the unifying principle In the universe, he comes full of grace and full of truth, and we need both. Third, let me go back. Third, Jesus, full of grace and truth, comes to show us what it means to to provide a model for how we are to live faithfully. You guys remember... I think it was probably 15, maybe 20 years ago, there was those bracelets, WWJD. I hated those things. I mean, they were everywhere. Everyone was wearing them, and they're theologically iffy, okay? Let's just say that. But even when we recognize that Jesus is sui generis, one of a kind, there is a truth 
that he comes to show humanity how it ought to live. So there's a truth behind the WWJD bracelet. He comes and he models for us how we can fully live in grace and in truth. Think about just some of his conversations that were just infused with grace and truth. Look at the woman in the well, John chapter 4. The whole encounter is this grace-filled encounter. He shouldn't be talking to her, but he is because of grace. But there's a lot of truth in there, too. He says, woman, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you've had many. And the man you're with now isn't your husband. But it wasn't like slapping her in the face with truth. It was an invitation to encounter him as he is, to come deeper into relationship with him. Look also at the the woman who was caught in adultery. We don't know all the ins and outs of that story. I'd love to know what Jesus wrote in the sand that day. But he says, woman, where are your accusers? In other words, I'm not one of them. I'm not going to accuse you. I'm giving you grace. But there's also truth because he says, go and sin no more. Or Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher. Come on, you, you ought to know this stuff. But again, it's not an insult. It's an invitation to come and learn more. It's grace and truth together. And Jesus models for us what that can, what that ought to look like. Now, what do we take from this? Understanding Jesus is full of grace and truth, what are some practical applications? And there are so many. I mean, I I could talk about how to fix your eyes on Christ, who is beautiful, and that way you don't get lured into sin and its attraction. We could talk about that. We probably should talk about that more. We could talk about how in your studies you ought to pursue Christ through your studies of history or through your studies of English or whatever. I'm going to offer three that I think will apply to all of us. First, never give truth that isn't filled with grace. There's a mode of speaking nowadays that is anything but grace-filled truth-giving. Sometimes it falls under the label of, well, I just call it like I see it. Or I just speak truth. Or I'm blunt. Or I'm direct. Sometimes it comes in 140 characters from our leader. Sometimes it comes in our homes. Sometimes it comes in the church. A decade or so, there was a pastor that rose to prominence because of his reputation for just being blunt and direct and almost mean-spirited, and he fell from prominence because he was accused of abuse of his people. We're not called to abuse people with the truth. If we tell truth without grace, we are being unfaithful. Because we're not called to go out and just be truth-tellers. We're called to go out and be representatives of Jesus Christ who is full of grace and truth. So never just give truth that isn't grace-filled. Second, never give grace that isn't truthful. This feels better. 
this is a lot more comfortable just to speak grace. I'm putting that in quotes, okay? Acceptance, kindness without truth. That is equally unfaithful because it's a lie. Now, guys, I'm not saying if your wife is wearing the ugliest dress in the world and she says, how do I look? I'm not saying you have to be blunt with, you know, it's okay to say, you look great. But where it matters, in issues of the heart and the soul, we don't just gloss over sin to be gracious. We don't treat it as anything but the dangerous, damnable thing that it is, just to be gracious and kind. No, we're called to be filled, as Christ was, with grace and truth. The third thing, always. Always share the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. Don't ever hoard it. See, he's full of it. We don't have to dole it out sparingly. There's more where that came from. We desperately needed grace and truth in our life. We needed to see the beauty of God's glory because to steal C.S. Lewis's image, we were perfectly content playing in the mud because we had no idea how great the ocean was until someone came and told us about it and showed us the ocean. You needed grace and truth. You needed a glimpse of the beauty of God's glory. So does your neighbor. You needed to be freed from the lies or the truth of Jesus Christ. So does your neighbor. You needed an experience of grace that would lift the weight of guilt from your shoulders. So does your neighbor. I think we treat this task, this delight, this joy, and yes, this duty of of sharing Christ and His grace and truth as something that is not needed, unkind, intrusive. We wouldn't do that if we saw our neighbor dying of heat stroke, right? We wouldn't say, I'm sorry to intrude and bring you into air conditioning and give you water because they need it. Our neighbors need what we have found in Jesus. The freedom, the beauty, the grace, and the truth. And it's our task, it's our joy to get to share in that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for being the the liberal and generous God that you are. You don't dole out grace and truth in small portions. You lavish them upon us. And we are grateful. Father, we pray that you would expand our hearts to be even more grateful for them, to appreciate them, to rely on them even more, and then to share them freely knowing that it is a great joy to do so. Thank you again in Jesus' precious name. Amen.